0: CHAPTER Five, PART Two, ANNIE BESSENT, BY ANNIE BESSENT. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. A bitterly sad time followed. My dear mother was heartbroken. To her, with her wide and vague form of Christianity loosely held, the intensity of my feeling that where I did not believe I would not pretend belief was incomprehensible. She recognized far more fully than I did all that a separation from my home meant for me and the difficulties that would surround a young woman, not yet twenty-six, living alone. She knew how brutally the world judges and how the mere fact that a woman was young and alone justified any coarseness of slander. Then I did not guess how cruel men and women could be, how venomous their tongues. Now, knowing it, having faced slander and lived it down, I deliberately say that were the choice again before me I would choose as I chose then. I would rather go through it all again than live in society under the burden of an acted lie. The hardest struggle was against my mother's tears and pleading. To cause her pain was tenfold pain to me. Against harshness I had been rigid as steel, but it was hard to remain steadfast when my darling mother, whom I loved as I loved nothing else on earth, threw herself on her knees before me imploring me to yield it seemed like a crime to bring such anguish on her and i felt as a murderer as the snowy head was pressed against my knees and yet to live a lie not even for her was that shame possible in that worst crisis of blinding agony my will clung fast to truth and it is true now as it ever was that he who loves father or mother better than truth is not worthy of her, and that the flint-strewn path of honesty is the way to light and peace. Then there were the children, the two little ones who worshipped me, who was to them mother, nurse, and playfellow. Were they, too, demanded at my hands? Not wholly, for a time. Facts which I need not touch on here enabled my brother to obtain for me a legal separation, and when everything was arranged I found myself guardian of my little daughter, and possessor of a small monthly income sufficient for respectable starvation. With a great price I had obtained my freedom, but I was free. Home, friends, social position were the price demanded and paid, and, being free, I wondered what to do with my freedom. I could have had a home with my brother if I would give up my heretical friends and keep quiet, but I had no mind to put my limbs into fetters again, and in my youthful inexperience I determined to find something to do. The difficulty was the something, and I spent various shillings in agencies, which, with a quite wonderful unanimity, of failures. I tried fancy needlework, offered to ladies in reduced circumstances, and earned four shillings sixpence by some weeks of stitching. I experimented with a Birmingham firm, who generously offered everyone the opportunity of adding to their incomes, and on sending the small fee demanded received a pencil case with an explanation that i was to sell little articles of that description going as far as cruet stands to my friends i did not feel equal to springing pencil cases and cruet stands on my acquaintances so did not enter on that line of business and similar failures and numerous efforts made me feel as so many others have found that the world oyster is hard to open However, I was resolute to build a nest for my wee daughter, my mother, and myself, and the first thing to do was to save my monthly pittance to buy furniture. I found a tiny house in Colby Road, Upper Norwood, near the Scots, who were more than good to me, and arranged to take it in the spring, and then accepted a loving invitation to Folkestone, where my grandmother and two aunts were living, to look for work there, and found it. The vicar wanted a governess, and one of my aunts suggested me as a stopgap, and thither I went with my little Mabel, our board and lodging being payment for my work. I became head-cook, governess, and nurse, glad enough to have found something to do that enabled me to save my little income. But I do not think I will ever take to cooking for a permanence. Broiling and frying are all right, and making pie-crust is rather pleasant, but saucepans and kettles blister your hands. There is a charm in making a stew— the unaccustomed cook from the excitement of wondering what the result will be, and whether any flavor save that of onions will survive the competition in the mixture. On the whole, my cooking, strictly by cookery book, was a success, but my sweeping was bad, for I lacked muscle. This curious episode came to an abrupt end, for one of my little pupils fell ill with diphtheria, and I was transformed from cook to nurse. Mabel I dispatched to her grandmother, who adored her with a love condescendingly returned by the little fairy of three, and never was there a prettier picture than the red-gold curls nestled against the white, the baby Grace in exquisite contrast with the worn stateliness of her tender nurse. Scarcely was my little patient out of danger when the youngest boy fell ill of scarlet fever. We decided to isolate him on the top floor, and I cleared away carpets and curtains, hung sheets over the doorways and kept them wet with chloride of lime shut myself up in there with the boy having my meals left on the landing and when all risk was over proudly handed back my charge the disease touching no one else in the house and now the spring of eighteen seventy four had come and in a few weeks my mother and i were to set up house together how we had planned all and had knitted on the new life together we anticipated to the old one we remembered how we had discussed Mabel's education and the share which should fall to each. Daydreams, daydreams, never to be realized. My mother went up to town and in a week or two I received a telegram saying she was dangerously ill and as fast as express train would take me I was beside her. Dying, the doctor said. Three days she might live, no more. I told her the death sentence, but she said resolutely, I do not feel I am going to die just yet. And she was right. There was an attack of fearful prostration. The valves of the heart had failed. A very wrestling with death. And then the grim shadow drew backwards. I nursed her day and night with a very desperation of tenderness. For now fate had touched the thing dearest to me in life. A second horrible crisis came, and for the second time her tenacity and my love beat back the death stroke she did not wish to die the love of life was strong in her i would not let her die between us we kept the foe at bay then dropsy supervened and the end loomed slowly sure it was then after eighteen months abstention that i took the sacrament for the last time my mother had an intense longing to communicate before she died but absolutely refused to do so unless i took it with her "'If it be necessary to salvation,' she persisted doggedly, "'I will not take it if darling Annie is to be shut out. "'I would rather be lost with her than saved without her.' "'I went to a clergyman I knew well and laid the case before him. "'As I expected, he refused to allow me to communicate. "'I tried a second with the same result. "'At last a thought struck me. "'There was Dean Stanley, my mother's favorite a man known to be of the broadest school within the Church of England. Suppose I asked him. I did not know him, and I felt the request would be an impertinence, but there was just the chance that he might consent. And what would I not do to make my darling's deathbed easier? I said nothing to anyone but set out to the deanery, Westminster, timidly asked for the dean, and followed the servant upstairs with a sinking heart. I was left for a moment alone in the library, and and then the dean came in. I don't think I ever in my life felt more intensely uncomfortable than I did in that minute's interval as he stood waiting for me to speak, his clear, grave, piercing eyes gazing questioningly into mine. Very falteringly, it must have been very clumsily, I preferred my request, stating boldly, with abrupt honesty, that I was not a Christian, that my mother was dying, that she was fretting to take the sacrament, that she would not take it unless I took it with her that two clergymen had refused to allow me to take part in the service, that had come to him in despair, feeling how great was the intrusion, but she was dying. His face changed to a great softness. You were quite right to come to me, he answered, in that low musical voice of his, his keen gaze having altered into one no less direct, but marvelously gentle. Of course I will go and see your mother, and I have little doubt that, "'If you will not mind talking over your position with me, "'we may see our way clear to doing as your mother wishes.' "'I could barely speak my thanks, "'so much did the kindly sympathy move me. "'The revulsion from the anxiety and fear of rebuff "'was strong enough to be almost pain. "'But Dean Stanley did more than I asked. "'He suggested that he should call that afternoon "'and have a quiet chat with my mother, "'and then come again on the following day "'to administer the sacrament.' a stranger's presence is always trying to a sick person he said with rare delicacy of thought and joined to the excitement of the service it might be too much for your dear mother if i spend half an hour with her to-day and administer the sacrament to-morrow it will i think be better for her so dean stanley came that afternoon all the way to brompton and remained talking with my mother for about half an hour and then set himself to understand my own position He finally told me that conduct was far more important than theory, that he regarded all as Christians who recognized and tried to follow the moral law of Christ. On the question of the absolute deity of Jesus, he laid but little stress. Jesus was, in a special sense, the Son of God, but it was folly to quarrel over words with only human meanings when dealing with the mystery of the divine existence, And above all, it was folly to make such words into dividing walls between earnest souls. The one important matter was the recognition of duty to God and man, and all who were one in that recognition might rightfully join in an act of worship, the essence of which was not acceptance of dogma, but love of God and self-sacrifice for man. The Holy Communion, he concluded in his soft tones, was never meant to divide from each other hearts that are searching after the one true God. It was meant by its founder as a symbol of unity, not of strife. On the following day, Dean Stanley celebrated the Holy Communion by the bedside of my dear mother, and well was I repaid for the struggle it had cost me to ask so great a kindness from a stranger when I saw the comfort that gentle noble heart had given to her he soothed away all her anxiety about my heresy with tactful wisdom, bidding her have no fear of differences of opinion where the heart was set on truth. Remember, she told me, he said to her, remember that our God is the God of truth, and that, therefore, the honest search for truth can never be displeasing in his eyes. Once again after that he came, and after his visit to my mother we had another long talk. I ventured to ask him, the conversation having turned that way how with views so broad as his he found it possible to remain in communion with the church of england i think he answered gently that i am of more service to true religion by remaining in the church and striving to widen its boundaries from within than if i left it and worked from without and he went on to explain how as dean of westminster he was in a rarely independent position and could make the abbey of a wider national service than would otherwise be possible. In all he said on this, his love for and his pride in the glorious abbey were manifest, and it was easy to see that old historical associations, love of music, of painting, of stately architecture, were the bonds that held him bound to the old historic Church of England. His emotions, not his intellect, kept him churchman, and he shrank, with the oversensitiveness of the cultured scholar, from the idea of allowing the old traditions to be handled roughly by inartistic hands. Naturally of a refined and delicate nature, he had been rendered yet more exquisitely sensitive by the training of the college and the court. The polished courtesy of his manners was but the natural expression of a noble and lofty mind, a mind whose very gentleness sometimes veiled its strength. I have often heard Dean Stanley harshly spoken of; I have heard his honesty roughly challenged; but never has he been attacked in my presence that I have not uttered my protest against the injustice done him, and thus striven to repay some small fraction of that great debt of gratitude which I shall ever owe his memory. And now the end came swiftly. I had hurriedly furnished a couple of rooms in the little house, now ours. "'that I might take my mother into the purer air of Norwood, "'and permission was given to drive her down in an invalid carriage. "'The following evening she was suddenly taken worse. "'We lifted her into bed and telegraphed for the doctor. "'But he could do nothing, "'and she herself felt that the hand of death had gripped her. "'Selfless to the last, she thought but for my loneliness. "'I am leaving you alone,' she sighed from time to time and truly i felt with an anguish i did not dare to realize that when she died i should indeed be alone on earth for two days longer she was with me my beloved and i never left her side for five minutes on may tenth the weakness passed into gentle delirium but even then the faithful eyes followed me about the room until at length they closed for ever and as the sun sank low in the heavens the breath came slower and slower, till the silence of death came down upon us and she was gone. Stunned and dazed with the loss, I went mechanically through the next few days. I would have none touch my dead save myself and her favourite sister, who was with us at the last. Cold and dry-eyed I remained, even when they hid her from me with a coffin lid, even all the dreary way to Kensal Green where her husband and her baby son were sleeping, "'and when we left her alone in the chill earth, "'damp with the rains of spring. "'I could not believe that our daydream was dead and buried, "'and the home in ruins, ere yet it was fairly built. "'Truly my house was left unto me desolate, "'and the rooms, filled with sunshine but unlighted by her presence, "'seemed to echo from their bare walls, "'You are all alone.' "'But my little daughter was there,' AND HER SWEET FACE AND HER DANCING FEET BROKE THE SOLITUDE, WHILE HER IMPERIOUS CLAIMS FOR LOVE AND TENDANCE FORCED ME INTO ATTENTION TO THE DAILY NEEDS OF LIFE. AND LIFE WAS HARD IN THOSE DAYS OF SPRING AND SUMMER, RESOURCES SMALL, AND WORK DIFFICULT TO FIND. IN TRUTH, THE TWO MONTHS AFTER MY MOTHER'S DEATH WERE THE dreariest MY LIFE HAS KNOWN, AND THEY WERE MONTHS OF TOLERABLY HARD STRUGGLE. THE LITTLE HOUSE IN COLBY ROAD TAXED MY SLENDER RESOURCES HEAVILY AND THE SEARCH FOR WORK WAS NOT YET SUCCESSFUL. I DO NOT KNOW HOW I SHOULD HAVE MANAGED BUT FOR THE HELP EVER AT HAND OF MR. AND MRS. THOMAS SCOTT. DURING THIS TIME I WROTE FOR MR. SCOTT PAMPHLETS ON INSPIRATION, ATONEMENT, MEDIATION AND SALVATION, ETERNAL TORTURE, RELIGIOUS EDUCATION OF CHILDREN, NATURAL VERSUS REVEALED RELIGION and the few guineas thus earned were very valuable. Their house, too, was always open to me, and this was no small help, for often in those days the little money I had was enough to buy food for two, but not enough to buy it for three, and I would go out and study all day at the British Museum so as to have my dinner in town, the said dinner being conspicuous by its absence. If I was away for two evenings running from the hospitable house in the terrace, "'Mrs. Scott would come down to see what had happened, "'and many a time the supper there was of real physical value to me. "'Well might I write in 1879, when Thomas Scott lay dead. "'It was Thomas Scott whose house was open to me "'when my need was sorest, and he never knew, "'this generous, noble heart, how sometimes when I went in, "'weary and overdone from a long day's study in the British Museum, "'with scarce food to struggle through the day, he never knew how his genial well little lady in a welcoming tone cheered the then utter loneliness of my life to no living man save one do i owe the debt of gratitude that i owe to thomas scott the small amount of jewellery i possessed and all my superfluous clothes were turned into more necessary articles and the child at least never suffered from a solitary touch of want my servant mary was a wonderful contriver "'and kept house on the very slenderest funds "'that could be put into a servant's hands. "'And she also made the little place so bright and fresh-looking "'that it was always a pleasure to go into it. "'Recalling those days of hard living, "'I can now look on them without regret. "'More, I am glad to have passed through them, "'for they have taught me how to sympathize "'with those who are struggling as I struggled then, "'and I never can hear the words fall from pale lips. "'I am hungry.' Without remembering how painful a thing hunger is, and without curing that pain at least for the moment, the presence of the child was good for me, keeping alive my aching, lonely heart. She would play contentedly for hours while I was working, a word now and again being enough for happiness. When I had to go out without her, she would run to the door with me, and the good-bye would come from downturned lips. she was ever watching at the window for my return. And the sunny face was always the first to welcome me home. Many and many a time have I been coming home, weary, hungry, and heartsick, and the glimpse of the little face watching has reminded me that I must not carry in a grave face to sadden my darling, and the effort to throw off the depression for her sake threw it off altogether, and brought back the sunshine. She was the sweetness and joy of my life, my curly headed darling with her red-gold hair and glorious eyes, and passionate, willful, loving nature. The torn, bruised tendrils of my heart gradually twined round this little life. She gave something to love and to tend, and thus gratified one of the strongest impulses of my nature. End of chapter 5